Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 187, and today's guest is Sam Clemens, partner at Accomplice. Sam is an investor and entrepreneur who is one of the top product leaders in the tech scene. After leading product at BuzzAgent and HubSpot, he went on to be a co-founder at Insight Squared, the leading provider of revenue intelligence solutions. At Accomplice, he is focused on making investments in B2B software and marketplace companies. He's also part of the faculty at Harvard Business School, where he teaches the early stage startup course called Launching Tech Ventures. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like how Sam's experience as a product leader and operator has helped influence his role as a venture capitalist, his background story and how he ended up leading product teams, the founding story of Insight Squared and how they built product market fit, what led him down the path of becoming a VC again, lots of great tips for hiring product managers, including a useful secret on where to find them, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, we just launched a new video section on VentureFizz. Based on all the great video content that we've been creating, it was time that these videos had their own home on our site. You'll find all the episodes from our two flagship video series, that being CXO Briefing and Inside, where you can also filter videos based on job category, location, or industry. Our goal for this section is to help you with your job search by discovering companies, learning about their culture, and stay tuned as we'll have lots of great tips and advice for advancing your career soon too. Make sure you check it out by going to venturefizz.com backslash videos. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Sam. Sam, thanks so much for joining us. Keith, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you. Uh, so you're one of the top product leaders in Boston, even though you're an investor now, you know, you still have your hands in lots of different things, which we're going to talk about because there's a whole different set of things that you've done throughout your career and that you're still doing today. So I, I was curious, like you have this very strong background in, in leading product at high growth tech companies uh, and being a very strong operator who scaled companies. So do you think that has helped you in terms of, you know, your, your role as a venture capitalist today? Uh, yes and no. Um, Venture is a very different business, and so in in some ways it's helped because I think it it uh, it, it adds credibility and it adds it's a way of adding value when as an investor you can actually speak to a founder and say hey I've I've you know I've been in your shoes uh, I've been an operator um, you know here's this super difficult challenge you're facing like do you need to you know fire your head of sales or something like that. Um, you know, and it helps when you've, when you've been in those shoes before and you've done that, you've made that decision yourself personally, uh, several times before and, and not just as an advisor on the board, but like specifically you have done that decision multiple times before. And so that I think does help as an investor when you're working with operators and early stage founders. Um, on the other side, I think it, you know, it is a different business. Um, venture has a very different metabolism and feedback loop that is totally different from startups. Um, you know, startups operate on, in fact, uh, you can almost say they're, they're um, contingent upon your ability to drive a super fast metabolism and feedback cycle. And by that, I mean like one week feedback loops where you run a test, you need to figure something out. You can get data within about a week and then adjust course. Um, that feedback loop in venture is not one week. It's about eight years. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, let's, let's rewind the clock. You decided to study applied mathematics and economics at Yale. So what prompted you to uh, decide on that? Oh, applied math was puzzles. 
uh, it's what nowadays they would call machine learning. Um, part of my work there was I had to write a, uh, a neural network in Fortran. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it was basically here are these, you know, interesting real world problems, which is why they call it applied math. So some real world problem, um, you know, and you needed to use some sort of, you know, computers and software and math to figure it out. And you had a toolbox to figure it out. And that was applied math. So it might be a differential equation. It might be some, you know, matrices. Um, it might be a set of algorithms. But, you know, that was that was what uh, drove me to applied math was, uh, you know, how do you solve these, all these real world problems? Uh, and I found that much more attractive than pure math, which was, um, you know, where the only numbers in the in the textbook were the page numbers. Uh, that, that got uh, boring for me pretty quickly. So what did you do after you graduated? Uh, went into business, basically did management consulting for a couple of years, which was the, you know, when you come out of liberal arts, two years of management consulting is kind of like a crash course in business. And uh, I did nine product launches for uh, mainly Lucent and Bell South over the course of two years. And, uh, and, and quickly realized that while I enjoyed that stage of working with a product when it's, you know, some fresh technology and they're trying to wrap a business plan around it. Uh, super interesting. But then I really didn't enjoy not being able to be involved with it after the fact. Mm -hmm. And so uh, there was a startup in town. At this point, I was in New York City and they tried to recruit my boss who was up for partnership. And he said, you know, I really can't do it. I'm risk averse at this point. But, uh, you know, take this take this kid on my team. And so I ended up joining a team in New York City. Uh, that was at the time, uh, just the two founders and a technologist, and it was called Elance. Um, that later became, you know, 19 or 20 years later, uh, Upwork. Wow. I didn't, what? Fascinating. I didn't, so you were part of the early stage team of that company. That's fascinating. So, so and then what prompts you to go back to business school? Well, with that Elance, uh, 99 to 01, uh, the market absolutely imploded in the dot-com crash. Now, the company survived, obviously, but we had to lay off from 110 down to 40 people. And that was a, you know, a pretty scarring experience. Yeah. So it, it became clear that, you know, the company would survive and work in the marketplace, the two-sided marketplace that uh, we were building. It was pretty clear that there was a need there um, and it was going to work, but it was going to take years to grow it. Yeah. Uh, this was, you know, 01. Uh, a lot of the, the barrier to growth that we were, we were, we had discovered was really just the business world getting comfortable with the internet as a way to buy things. And that was going to take years to change. And so it became clear that it was going to work, but it was going to take a while. And so I decided to, uh, to hop out and, uh, and basically try something else. And, you know, as a, as a stepping stone, as a way to basically uh, hunker down for a couple of years, business school was not bad. Yeah, exactly. And what'd you do after B school? Went back into startups. I'm, I'm, I'm basically a one trick pony at this point uh, for the rest of my career. <laughs> Right. Uh, early stage startups. Uh, in fact, I'm 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 not particularly good uh, at any point after you know uh, uh, 200 people or so. Once you start having meetings about meetings, uh, <laughs> I, I need to I need to tap out. I get I get pretty frustrated pretty quickly. Well, you joined Buzz Agent, which we had Dave Balter on the podcast a ways back. So, so yeah. Buzz Agent. Dave Balter is a force of nature. Yes, he is. He's an amazing entrepreneur. Uh, and then from there, you went to HubSpot. So, what did you do at HubSpot? HubSpot was, was a very interesting role. It was uh, the, the product side of the house had been run by uh, Brian Halligan. Um, 
And you know, he's one of the, the best natural sales execs I've ever encountered in my life on anything. And so he had been uh, essentially building as a founder, he'd been building the product as what set of features would naturally sell the best in any given uh, week or month. And so, you know, he'd been doing that for about a year and the, the product had gotten to a point where it was kind of this like loose, very loose conglomeration of features that individually uh, sold well, uh, but there was no coherence between them. And so it was a very interesting role. Um, a, you know, taking over from a founder as a first non-founder had a product uh, is, a, is a very interesting challenge that, uh, you know, a lot of product people at some point in their career will, will probably face. And then secondly, it was interesting because you're taking over from a, a head of sales product leader. So one of the chief challenges is how do you, how do you bring coherence to a very broad and, uh, you know, non-coherent uh, product suite? So a super interesting uh, experience. It was also right at the at the time when um, Agile was, you know, Agile dates in theory from 01, but it really started uh, going mainstream uh, in software, you know, B2B software development in the late 00s, like around, you know, 06, 08. And so it was interesting to work with a really high-powered Agile team uh, that was had been built by a colleague of mine there, uh, Yoa Shapiro. All right, now we're going to talk about your journey into entrepreneurship. So you kind of built this foundation of your career as leading, you know, product for great companies. So did you always know that, hey, someday I'm going to build my own startup, like as a founder? You know, some founders are like that. They're like, you know, from from age four, you know, they just have to be, uh, you know, they've got some vision that they have just have to be doing. Uh, I, I think I'm maybe the converse of that as a way of being a founder. Is I'm, I'm more, or maybe defined it in the negative. Um, I simply know from my from my days in management consulting that I really don't enjoy working for, uh, you know, for the for the boss. Um, I get, you know, too frustrated with when I when I see something that I believe is strongly believe is correct. I want to go and test it and try it and do it. Mm-hmm. So I get very frustrated very quickly with, uh, you know, bureaucracy. And so I'm I'm a founder not because I particularly want to be starting things from the zero stage, but more because I, I know I don't work very well in organizations and reporting to reporting through hierarchy. So Insight Squared, how did you, how did the idea generate and how did you meet your co-founders? Yeah. So the, the founder with the idea was Fred Schilmover. Uh, he had actually been, uh, he'd been an intern for the product team that I had at HubSpot. And we were, we had just spun up a new engineering team and I needed to hire a PM for it. And we interviewed, you know, 60 different people for this spot and ended up making him a job offer. And he said, look, I'd really love to come be a PM on your team, but I'm, I had this idea that's burning me up. And I said, well, hell, well, <laughs> I just interviewed 60 people and I made you a job offer. So what is this idea that's so good you're about to turn down this offer? You can't turn down HubSpot. Yeah, and he said, and he said I, want to, um, I want to do BI for SMB. And so, you know, as a collection of, you know, seven letters or whatever, it's actually pretty powerful. Uh, if you've, you know, in the B2B space, uh, BI, business intelligence, mm-hmm. um, up through that period had been something that I had used multiple times. Everyone in the business world has used. And, you know, the, the primary vendor was business objects. And it was awful, mm-hmm. absolutely unusable. And so it was a massive pain point that I immediately knew. So as soon as he said it, I said, oh, that is absolutely worth doing. And so I connected him with the best technologist I've ever met, um, who's this guy, Brian Stevenson. 
Um, he's simply the best zero, you know, V0 to V1 uh, architect, software architect I've ever worked with. And so connected them and uh, the three of us, uh, the three of us did it. I met Fred at a tech conference when he was still at HBS. And so it must have been around that time where he was percolating this idea. So let's talk about the company. So you're going after business objects, which was the, you know, the, the anchor company in this space. So how do you start to build a product and go to market to take on kind of the, the legacy company in the space? Yeah, it's an interesting question. We didn't do it so much in the context of how do we, how do we go kill business objects? Um, I think there are ways you can start a company to go explicitly after something else um, and use like sort of takeaway, go to market tactics and whatnot. Um, we came at it more um, because essentially the, the thesis was BI for SMB, not enterprise. We basically said, hey, look, there's a greenfield opportunity around business intelligence for the SMB and mid market. Um, and this, these are of the, of the market for business intelligence. Essentially, business object is serving the, the top, the enterprise customers, the top third of the, of the market decently well. Can someone beat them? Yes. Um, but should someone go after the, the bottom two thirds of the market that is currently totally greenfield and using Microsoft Excel? We said, let's go do that. Mm-hmm. So we designed a product. We basically said, okay, what would be the business intelligence product that a, a high SMB or mid-market customer would uh, use and purchase? And we designed that. And that was Insights course. But and there was an evolution, right? Because originally, like I think there was some there was a use case for for staffing firms of the data they were using, and then it ended up being Salesforce data after that, right? Yeah. So we 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 use the fairly common strategy of you find a beachhead for your target market, and then you expand from that beachhead. Yeah. Uh, and so there's two things you want to look for in that in that strategy. One is you need to pick a beachhead that is small enough that you can quickly gain dominance within that beachhead and get basically word of mouth momentum inside of a beachhead so that you don't have to, uh, you can basically win the beachhead, if you will. And then the second criteria is you need to be able to expand from that beachhead into adjacent segments relatively easily. If you pick a beachhead and win it, but you can't expand with just something contiguous, well, then you've, you know, you don't really have a, you're going to have to work hard again to, to do the next one. Uh, it didn't help you in getting to the second one. And so the beachhead we initially picked was uh, staffing. Um, had a very acute pain point, was wildly underserved. Uh, we had very good connections. And so we went and we actually killed that. I mean, we, we got massive renown within that specific audience of here's staffing firms that are trying to sell essentially recruiting engagements to, uh, to prospects. And the reason we did that is it, it, if you kind of know the staffing market, most staffing companies, they exist really of a, basically just a bank of employees who are inside sales teams. Staffing companies are, it's an inside sales team with a, uh, you know, a skinned version of an inside sales team. And so we, we basically hit that beachhead and then we expanded from essentially that specialized uh, definition of a sales team into the more broad use case of not staffing inside sales, but just general inside sales. Uh, and that's, a, that's essentially when we also expanded from data sources that were things like Bullhorn to data sources that were more generic like Salesforce. And so once you did start to get, you kind of dominated the staffing industry market and then went adjacent to Salesforce, like how, how did you think about, you know, the evolution of the product suite, uh, you know, as you know, you were owning that part of, of the business? Yeah, it's a super interesting question. And I think it'll, it's, it's one that will be faced by most startups when they're doing this, uh, like crossing the chasm expansion. You're going to find a, some beachhead that is going to work and you're going to build 
you know, the whole notion of like build an MVP, a version one, a version two of whatever your product, it's going to end up being just by nature of how you develop for customer needs, it can end up being somewhat specialized for that beachhead. And so all of these early stage companies, once they graduate out of that beachhead, they're going to be facing this problem of then, how do you evolve the product for the more general case? Uh, you also see this, by the way, on the go-to-market side of the house, which is a super interesting stage of development, which we can talk about if it'd be interesting. But, mm-hmm. um, but in the product side, yeah, uh, you face an evolution from uh, how do you go from a very specialized product uh, instance to something that's more general use case. Uh, and it takes discipline, particularly around how you do product road mapping, which is one of my passions. Um, how do you set it up so that you are tracking things at the right level so you keep up momentum and velocity in how you're how you're building things you still feel like a startup however how do you introduce some maturity uh so that you are building towards the longer term goal of bringing on the second larger market that you've now decided to expand into it's kind of like this um it's the simultaneous moment of you need to keep the uh you know the youth and velocity of uh startup development but start to introduce the maturity and planning of uh, of sort of later stage development. It's the teenage years of, of, of product management. And you talked about go-to-market. So how do you figure out the go-to-market with, uh, you know, so you have SMBs and that's a massive market. I would think you would need, you know, you need access to data sources. So it's not like they can just download something in a freemium model or am I wrong? Oh, well, so many lessons uh, on how to... <laughs> on how to grow and change your, your go-to-market team as something as it scales. So many lessons. And Inside Squared was fantastic for that because we were selling to sales teams. Uh, you know, we sold to a, a thousand different uh, accounts that all had sales teams. And we saw all of their data. That was our job. And we analyzed everything for them from their forecasts to their rep efficiency to, you know, down to things like what is the ratio you have between your BDRs and your AEs? Is it two to two to one, one to one, or one to two? You know, you give me that one number, and I can tell you a world of things about a sales work. So you learn a ton of things when you when you look at. I think at one point I used to joke that we had more Salesforce customers, to, uh, you know, more than anyone besides Salesforce themselves. Um, you, you start to see a lot of the patterns in what makes a go-to-market sales team uh, work, what makes them high-performing uh, or not. And so there were so many lessons. Um, you know, things around, um, you know, how do you, uh, how do you measure them, obviously, but how do you uh, create the right incentives, not just in the beginning when you're trying to get sales velocity, but also later on when you're trying to manage churn. Um, how do you bring on new leaders? Uh, you know, what's the right leader for the, the, you know, the zero or the one person sales team? What's the right sales leader for the uh, 12 person sales team? And what's the right sales leader for the 80-person sales team? Those are three totally different animals. Mm-hmm. And that will kill, that, that decision there will kill a startup very easily if you get the wrong one of the three for which, at whichever stage you're at. So you mentioned earlier that, hey, as a company scales, you, know, you like the you know, growth to 200 is what you said. And then once it's meeting about meetings, it's like, okay. So, so as a, a co-founder of Insight Square that raised multiple rounds of venture capital funding, scaling quickly, at what point do you decide like, hey, you know, it's, it's, t- it's time to move on. And like, what advice would you give to other founders that may have the same, you know, same thoughts? I have an excellent co-founder that you can leave in, in control and, and uh, you know, leave back home with the reins in their hands. Uh, that's Fred. Uh, he's still running the business. He's phenomenal. 
and in the among the three of us as the, as the co-founders, uh, Brian was deeply technical. Um, Fred was deeply go-to-market, and I was the bridge. And so early on, when the company was very product-focused, uh, the weight of all where the questions were, where the things we needed to discover, where all the tests were, and the and the and the learning, I was very much on the build side of the house. But then naturally, as things progressed, we became all of our challenges became much more go-to-market type challenges. Mm-hmm. And so the the weight, the pendulum, kind of swung gradually over the years to the other side, to the go-to-market side. Um, and so you know that's when uh, you know it became more much more naturally in Fred's court. And so it was kind of a natural transition when you know I stopped being uh, so much so necessary and so much in demand in the company because really all of the the big hard decisions uh, were things that were naturally in Fred's court. And so so it, it was actually a pretty easy transition. Um, you know he was already uh, doing all the hard things. Yeah. So what led you down the path of becoming an investor at Accomplice? Oh, uh, becoming an investor again. Um, I actually, uh, after, after B-School, I did a, a short uh, year and a half, two years uh, with Greylock in Boston. Um, I didn't actually uh, plan on going back into venture. Uh, Jeff Fagman at uh, Accomplice asked me, he said, you know, hey, do you, uh, he was the lead investor in Inside Squared. And he knew that I was, you know, looking for the next challenge. And he said, you know, would you want to try venture again? I said, no, nah, not really. You know, been there, done that. No, thanks. And he said, no, no, we're, we're different. Um, you know, we do the early stage, uh, you know, much more, et cetera, et cetera. So I said, all right, let's, you know, let's give it a try. And it, it, it actually made sense because for years while at Inside Squared, um, I had been, I'd been in communication with various other product leaders throughout Boston and throughout the area that, you know, would come to me and say, hey, how do I do product road mapping? Or when do I hire my first non-founder PM? Or, hey, you know, we're really facing issues with velocity. You know, what are some things that I can investigate? Or we're really having challenges around bugs and defect rate. Uh, you know, what are some things we can look at? So all of these questions are super common and were, were conversations I, were having, I was having already with product leaders around town who then often would go out and found companies and would come to me and say, hey, you know, we've, we've been talking for years about product management. And, you know, do you have any thoughts on who I should raise money from? And I would invariably send them to Accomplice. I'd say, look, you know, if I was going to raise money, there's, there's one shop in town I'd speak to. There's one and only one, and it's Accomplice. And, and so it was actually a somewhat easy hop to go from recommending Accomplice to simply being at Accomplice and also recommending Accomplice. So what, what are you generally looking for these days as far as the investments that you're making, like the stage of the company, you know, the general criteria yeah. that you look for? Yeah, it's a good question. It's actually good advice for founders who are going to have conversations with VCs is, is that the, the partner matters. Uh, different partners have different, particularly in the early stage where the investment is based so much on uh, what is the partner comfortable with and what can they get conviction around when there's an absence of data. If you're doing a pre-seed or a seed investment, there is no data, right? This is, there's no spreadsheet or KPI that they can, you know, the investor can evaluate. A lot of it is going to be based on conviction, which will come from how well they know the space. And so when you're speaking to a, a VC, don't, don't go approach the company, approach the company and the partner specifically. So that partner, is that a, is that a partner who mainly does blockchain? Is that a partner who mainly does consumer or cybersecurity or boring B2B SaaS? You know, each of those, you know, at Accomplice, for example, are totally different people. 
and so make sure you're speaking with the right partner first otherwise you're going to be wasting your time and you're not going to get a you know a real concrete answer so yeah figure out who's the right partner for this kind of project and then go talk to them and uh and and you know hopefully if they're from that category they'll quickly understand what's going on and they'll have a really not only will they be, be able to offer you value but they will be able to come to a decision on whatever the project is that much more quickly because they already know that space and for me that's that's um i was joking but only half joking it's boring b2b SaaS. Not, not a consumer guy. I have a great deal of respect for consumer and blockchain and all the rest, but um, you know, my favorite category is uh, is just you know boring old B two B. And it's a great space. It's a space that obviously you've got a tremendous amount of experience building companies, and obviously being able to add value to the founders that you're backing is is yeah. uh, ideal. I, I, I joke that I like problems where uh, you know the customer has a problem, you solve it, and they write you a check. As a, as a product person, that's very concrete and uh, easily, it, it gives you very good signal when you've actually solved the problem because they write you a check. So as a product person, I like that. And then as a go-to-market strategy, it's, you know, inside sales teams and field sales teams and, and you know, marketing is not about branding. Marketing is about pipeline. Uh, it tends to be more analytical and quantitative. All of these things are things that I love about B2B. Now, is there a stage that's too early for a company meaning hey they don't have a product in market yet or you know maybe they only have a couple early adopter customers or just hypothetical they've got an idea like it would it, how much do you look for as far as any traction yeah so we uh we accomplish our early stage and so if you were asking that question of you know a company that mainly did series a or b investments you know i think they're obviously going to give you a very different answer yeah uh, for us we we like to be the the first institutional investor um, and so the signals we will look for will be uh, or at least for example me personally that i look for would be i like speaking to a customer and i i as a product person i i, I look for pain now that i think there's that might say something about personality, but let's not go there. But uh, I, I look for pain because I know if there's enough pain uh, as a product person, you can go and solve that and you can make money and build a business around it. Yeah. Um, if there's a little bit of pain, that's going to be a small business and maybe not interesting for investors. But if it's a giant amount of pain that is experienced by a lot of people, that can be interesting. You can build a, a big company around that. So I always start with, uh, you know, is there enough pain here to be to be worth it? And an easy way to often find that is by speaking to an early customer. What's interesting is that you don't need 60 customers for that. You don't need a, a late stage company at 60 customers. You don't need 60. You probably need something more like six or three uh, if you're going enterprise, for example. So it's, it's that kind of qualitative feedback that, uh, that I look for uh, in validating is this something you can build a business around. Um, and then on top of that, of course, it's the team, because when there's not a lot of data, there's going to be so many unknowns. Uh, you know that any projections are not going to be worth anything. Um, what will You can depend on the fact that what will happen is that the company will need to change course along the way. And the only way to ensure that that will go smoothly is to, is to bet on a team that will be able to do it well. And so knowing the founders in some way, having a, having a really great team, uh, who will be driven and will be able to figure out those challenges that will invariably come up uh, is the is the other major component. Well, let's talk about product management. You already brought up a, a question I was going to ask you. It's like, okay, typically founders, somebody's heading up product as the company is getting going and starting to scale. And there comes a point in time when the company needs to 
hand that baton over like they did at HubSpot to a person that's going to lead it. So it's kind of like a two prong question because product management used to be my focus for recruiting. And it would often be, hey, founders running product, they're scaling, go to market, whatever their kind of specialty was. Now they need to hire a product person. And that first product hire was usually like a director, senior PM, because they weren't ready for the strategic VP yet. So what advice would you give to founders? They're like, we need someone to own product just to get it going. And then at what point do you bring in like a real VP to like lead that? Yeah. So let me actually divide that into, into sort of two challenges. When do you bring on the first non-founder uh, product hire? Yes. And there's, you see a ton of risk around doing that well and not doing that well. And then secondly, when do you bring in the, the first VP? So the first non-founder product hire, the first question, in my experience, the best time to do it is when you spin up your second engineering team. And okay, when is that? How big is an engineering team? Um, I've got strong opinions on sort of good and bad ways to do that as well, uh, no surprise. Um, I like to run a slightly lower ratio of engineer to PM than most uh, teams. Um, I like to run between four to one and six to one. Many companies like to run around six to one to eight to one. Uh, if you look at you know late stage companies like you know Microsoft, they may run 10 to 12 engineers per PM. So I like to run decidedly on the, uh, the high uh, PM per engineer or the low engineer to PM ratio, like four to six to one. And so you might start uh, essentially as a founder, you know, you bring on say uh, two engineers and three engineers, four engineers. As a, let's say there's multiple founders, a go-to-market founder and a build founder. As the build founder, four engineers, you're still able to quite easily handle that. You're getting feedback from meeting customers yourself because you're directly involved. Your customer count is not high enough. And you're able quite cleanly still to process that and send that through to four engineers. You can kind of flex up to six. When you hit eight, you're going to have trouble. Mm -hmm. um, as a solo founder, on top of all the product stuff you're doing, you also have your founder responsibilities. And it's likely that some, at some point between six and eight, uh, you're going to get overloaded and start to have a, a mental breakdown. And so that's the point at which you typically split the teams. And so you can often split, I see two models that I like, into two teams of four or a heavier team of say like five and then a lighter team of three. Both work. Um, and that's also the point at which I think it makes sense for you to bring in your first non-founder uh, uh, product manager. I would not bring in a product leader. Strong opinion on this. Because this is the point at which uh, it's still very early in the development of the product. There's gonna be a lot of big choices that need to happen that won't have data for them. They're gonna be visionary types of decisions that only you as a founder will be able to sense because it's, it's your vision. You're, you're, you're not just looking around the corner, you're looking five years out or three years out. And so with those kinds of questions, it really, the, 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 big, the big driving decisions for the product still need to be handled by a founder. And so I would not hire an, uh, a product lead. I would simply hire a product manager to basically help you triage the volume of development, which is happening at that point. So at that point, you either put them in charge of one of the two teams. You take four. Uh, a four per you continue with a four-person team, uh, and they take a, a four-person team. Or depending on their capabilities, if they're somewhat junior, it could be five and three. If they're more skilled, if they've had previous product roles, then they could be running five and you could be running three. But I like having still two teams where you are uh, your player coach, 
you are still acting PM for one of the teams, and you are head of product for the overall build uh, side of the house. That, in my mind, is phase two. Phase one is it was just you. Phase two is you with a, a PM. And then phase three is you go to an outside product lead. Um, I like doing that when you've hit um, typically around, say, 3 p.m. And now there's enough happening on the build side of the house. If there's two founders, one run go to market and one running build between design, product management, product market, engineering, DevOps, IT, all of these things, you, you know, these are six different departments on the build side of the house. Uh, you need to, at that point, hand off product management to an outside product lead so that you can run, you can better do the build side of the house yourself. Okay, that was a long-winded answer with a lot of opinions in it. Yeah, but that, that was perfect. I was looking for that exact feedback because it was very tactical too. Like you had numbers, ratios. It was very, you know, someone could fall if, if that's a fit for their business. Now, what about hiring product managers? Like, I know it's going to be different depending on role and level of responsibility, but generally speaking, like what makes a great product manager and how do you figure that out if you've never hired a product person before? Yeah, yeah. So the, the secret to hiring PMs uh, to, to how to recruit and interview and, and hire PMs that you don't, you've never worked with before is not to. It, don't do that. <laughs> um, I like to joke, but I'm kind of only semi-joking, is that you can do more damage as a PM than you can as a CEO. Um, there's checks and balances as a CEO. There are people who have done sales and marketing and product and edge that will invariably get involved before things go too far. As a PM who's running, say, a five-person team, you can do quite a bit of damage before there's a check or balance that comes into effect. And so you really need to be careful with your product leaders. And, and so I'm, I'm speaking to you as someone who's, who's been in the staffing and recruiting space before. Um, my opinion, I'm, I'm, I've tried incredibly hard to be good at hiring over the years. And I would say that best case scenario, most optimistically, my success rate in hiring is like 70% if I'm being really purely objective about it, which sounds okay. I mean, hey, that, that's not a bad batting average. A great PM, <laughs> except the fact that now recognize you're in a 30-person company. Right. And that's a 30% chance of really screwing up the entire company because right. a bad hire in a 30-person company is not like a bad hire in a 200-person company where there's uh, some dilution and resilience and the, the organism can recover and replace. Um, no, this is a, a very early stage company. It might even be 18 people. And so uh, the, the best solution that I've found, at least for the early stage, up to 100 people um, or up to even, say, 50 people, is don't hire people you don't already know. That's someone in your org hasn't already worked with. The, the first 17 people we hired at Inside Squared were all people one of us had worked with somehow before. Mm -hmm. And that dramatically de-risks the early stage, um, which is important because imagine you're a founder. It would be a shame if your idea was valid and the time was right, and you got a false negative on your startup, not because the idea was bad or the time was wrong, but simply because uh, you didn't have the right people. And that would be a false negative on it. So I, I think the early stage, hire people you've already worked with in some way. Now that sounds like a tall order. It's not as hard as it sounds. One of my favorite tactics is you poach out of customer success. Customer success is known for hiring overqualified people and then giving them an immense amount of customer intuition by putting them in contact with customers as part of their daily job for nine months. 
And so then you have this overqualified person who's incredibly intelligent and has deep customer empathy. And you basically go in and you've watched them, you've worked with them in this other org next to yours for nine months, and you poach them over into the product org. And you, you essentially give them the product playbook. You teach them the, the tactical skills to do that other role, but the hard parts are already done for you. You're already scanning for wattage and you're scanning for intuition. And so you, you have proof of those two things and then you just add the, the product playbook and you're good to go. I've done that a dozen, more than a dozen times. So, and the, so that, that's great, great feedback. So look within your own organization, even at a startup, someone in customer success could be your great next product manager. Customer success is fantastic. Um, there's other departments as well. Um, we were selling to sales teams. Uh, it turns out that sales engineers, sales operations, sales engineers in particular, same thing. They're on the, they're the equivalent of customer success, but on the pre-sales side, okay? But they also work directly with customers. They tend to be highly technical. They tend to be very, very uh, high wattage uh, intelligent. Um, one of the last PMs I hired was a, was a sales engineer. It's phenomenal. Um, it does mean that you need to have a playbook because you're, you're hiring someone that has no previous product experience. And so you need to have a playbook that you can then hand to them, figuratively speaking, mm-hmm. uh, and quickly onboard them into a, uh, a way of doing things. This is, you know, the, the, the Patriots hiring a player that maybe, you know, hasn't worked for other teams, um, but they're able to bring them on, put them into an organization and, and make them succeed. If you can find a way to do that, it enables you to bring on people instead of just, uh, you know, recruiting for keyword term equals product manager. Yeah, that's great feedback because oftentimes, uh, you know, again, doing searches for founders, it's like need product managers instead of looking at pre-sales and customer success. You know, there's other roles that are very similar in terms of the job function. Um, you know, there are there's probably a gap of learning the trade of the job, but they already have a lot of that core skill set of what you need. Exactly. So as we started off the podcast, I mentioned, you know, you're somebody who likes to be involved in multiple things. So you're a full-time investor at Accomplice, but also you're involved in a startup called Reprise, right? That's correct. Yeah. So as I'd mentioned before, my, my co-founder from Inside Squared was Brian Stevenson, and he's one of the best technical architects I've ever worked with. And, uh, and for the last nine months or so, he'd been tinkering with different ideas and he'd come to me and said, Hey, well, what about this? And what about this? And for a dozen of, of them, I'd said, Hey, that's a, a solution in search of a problem. Uh, and then he'd, he'd, he'd been working on this technology where he could essentially capture a production app um, as, it was, as it hit the browser. Uh, what's called the DOM. It's basically the, the program that's actually loaded and run in your browser when you're using an application. And it's not meant to be human readable. It's, it's, it's machine language. Um, he'd figure out a way essentially to, uh, this is not technically true, but essentially decompile it, make it editable, and then allow you to publish it again. And he said, is this interesting? I, I said, I, I think this solves that problem that we'd always had at Insight Squared and at HubSpot and at all these other previous companies that we'd all worked at where essentially the, the, the product had been designed for our customers. And so, you know, it had a certain depth to it. It had a flow to it. When you first dropped a customer into it, you put them into a blank instance of the product, right? That product, that production app, the environment, the production environment was wholly unsuited to everything that the rest of the organization needed. It, it didn't work for what marketing needed. Marketing wanted the ability to 
to use the product for pipeline generation. Uh, but they can't put prospects into the into the working product. Uh, we didn't have a, a touchless freemium app. Uh, and it was also wholly unsuited to what the sales team wanted. The sales team wanted to be able to give very scripted demos, uh, you know, with, with synthesized data. And, and it was very hard for us to make that. We had that problem in, at Inside Squared, where we had to essentially create a, uh, a synthetic instance of the application with anonymized data. And it was never exactly what the sales team wanted to demo. But we also had that uh, problem at HubSpot. Um, in the early days at HubSpot, we used to demo on HubSpot's own portal of the system. So basically HubSpot's marketing team used portal uh, 53. That was what they used for marketing HubSpot. That's also where the sales team demoed. And so for example, there was an issue one day when uh, an enterprising young uh, uh, sales rep who was new on the job was showing off the delete button in the CMS and they deleted HubSpot's homepage. <laughs> we were down for a day. So uh, there's a whole list of reasons why the needs of your production environment are not met, are, are, are totally mismatched with what the rest of your org needs. So that's what we're building, is we're building uh, the, the editing environment and, and uh, hosting environment for a product that serves your marketing, your sales teams, and your product management team, and, and everyone else except for your customers. Very, very cool. So uh, what do you like to do outside of work? Uh, there's one other topic besides product and startups that will get me going, uh, and that's uh, scuba diving. Oh, okay. uh, I'm, I'm a big uh, technical scuba diver. And by technical, I mean uh, mixed gases, mainly uh, helium. Uh, for equipment, we use uh, something that's called a rebreather. And it's mainly used uh, in, in military environments. It's where you're, you're recirculating the gas around and around. Uh, and we're typically doing, uh, you know, decompression, multi-hour decompression dives. Um, it's often either shipwrecks or caves. Uh, I cannot do caves. Uh, it just frightens me. But I love shipwrecks. I would freak out underwater in a cave. I would absolutely be claustrophobic and just panic. <laughs> me, me as well. I can't do them. So, so, but, so you've done shipwrecks? Oh, less. Love shipwrecks. Uh, I, they, um, caves make me feel claustrophobic shipwrecks. They, when you're coming down out of the gloom and you see this, this ship kind of emerge out of the darkness, it's like watching a spaceship kind of, uh, it's, it's, it's like seeing something alien. That's so cool. Uh, it's, it's really spooky and exhilarating and fascinating. That's a cool thing. That's very cool. Well, Sam, thanks for taking the time to walk us through your background, your career, the great stuff you're doing at Accomplice as an investor, your current startup, and of course, all the great advice for product management. Thank you, Keith. It was, it's, uh, it's been a pleasure. Glad I could help. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.